0: Today's New Testament reading will be Mark 3, verses 20 through 35, can be found on page 32 of your pew Bible. And the crowd came together, so that when they could not even eat, when his family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, He has gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He is Beelzebul. And by the ruler of the demons, he cast out demons, and he called them to him and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but his end has come. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his property without first tying up the strong man. Then indeed the house can be plundered. Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for their sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an internal sin. For they had said, He is an unclean spirit. Then his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and brothers and sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my my brother and sister and mother. We're about ready to read
1: one of the most famous stories in the Bible, although we're joining it in the final scene, which is often overlooked. For a long time, the dominant reading in the Western church of the Adam and Eve story was that human nature was fundamentally changed by what Adam and Eve did one fatal afternoon in the garden, and that this change was, in turn, transmitted to their descendants forever until it reached us. This view was held with particular fervor by the Puritans. But there's always been another interpretation of this passage in the church, and one that's risen to the forefront in the past two centuries. According to this interpretation, Genesis 2 and 3 is less about the dawn of human history and more about the human condition in every generation this interpretation makes the passage more personal. No longer is our primary question, how does what Adam and Eve did all those centuries ago affect me now and cause me to sin, and is that fair? Instead, we have to ask, how is what I do now similar to what Adam and Eve do in Genesis 2 and 3? In other words, we have met Adam and Eve, and they are us. Hear then these words from Genesis 3. Adam and Eve have already eaten of the apple. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He responded, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, "'What is this that you have done?' The woman said, "'The serpent tricked me, and I ate.' The Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, "'cursed are you among all animals and among all wild creatures. "'Upon your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. "'I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers.' He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pangs in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to the man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree about which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, until you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, you were dust, and to the dust you shall return. The man named his wife Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skins for the man and for his wife, and clothed them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. O <coughs> oh, Spirit, come among us now, fill me, use me, that through these human words, your holy word might be heard and might make a difference in our lives. In your son's name we pray. Amen. In the book, Teacher Man, Frank McCourt, the author of several wonderful memoirs, tells of his experience teaching English in a really tough, rough public high school in the Staten Island area of New York City. Like most teachers, he would get notes from his students excusing their failure to do their homework. Many were forged, nothing unusual about that. But what was unusual was that McCourt started to save the notes and keep them in a drawer, not as evidence for for further discipline, but as evidence that these students could write a lot better than they were showing on their class assignments. He writes, if their parents could read those notes They would discover that their kids are capable of the finest American prose, fluent, imaginative, clear, dramatic, fantastic, focused, persuasive, useful. Here are some of the excuses he collected. Arnold doesn't have his work today because he was getting off the train yesterday and the door closed on his school bag and the train took it away. He yelled at the conductor who said very vulgar things as the train drove away. Something should be done. Or, a man died in the bathtub upstairs and it overflowed and it messed up all of Roberta's homework on the table. (coughs) Or, Her big brother got mad at her and threw her essay out the window, and it flew away all over Staten Island, which is not a good thing, because people will read it and get the wrong impression unless they read the ending, which explains everything. (laughs) So McCourt then decided to give his students an assignment, and he wrote it on the board. An excuse note from Adam to God, or the alternative, an excuse note from Eve to God. He then describes what happened next. The heads went down. Pens raced across paper. They could do this with one hand tied behind their backs. The bell rang, and for the first time in my three and a half years of teaching, I saw high school students so immersed that they had to be urged out of the room by friends hungry for lunch. I'm betting that McCourt's students came up with better excuses than Adam and Eve do here in Genesis 3. These excuses come after their first tactic, fails. After eating the fruit from the tree, the one thing that God told them not to do, they try to hide from God, apparently trying to camouflage their fig-leaf-adorned bodies in the midst of trees. That fails. Big surprise. And so Adam and Eve rely on the great strategy used by every generation from Eden to Staten Island to today. They make excuses. When God asks, have you eaten from the tree which I command you not to eat? Adam admits it, but blames it on Eve. Eve, in turn, blames it on the snake. The snake, alas, never gets a chance to blame anyone else. Excuses, excuses. Preachers always hope that you're able to connect a biblical passage with something that's happening in the headlines. But I have to say that I think in all of my years of preaching, I've never had quite the connection that we were given this week by the 76ers. General Manager Brian Colangelo re- resigned because of some burner Twitter accounts that anonymously made disparaging comments about it some of his players. And he blamed it all on his wife. I was hoping for more, but never have I seen a tweet yet that she blamed it on a snake. (laughs) Since the beginning of time, people have used excuses to deflect attention from what they've done or not done. But that's not the only way we try to hide what we have done. Sometimes we run, leaving a job, a relationship, an accident scene. Sometimes we lash out in anger, relying on the adage that the best defense can be a good offense. Have you ever noticed that sometimes the traits or actions in others that makes us the angriest are the ones, if truth be told, are in us? It's as if we decide that as long as we focus on their problems, we don't have to focus on ours. Sometimes we cover it up, hoping that no one will discover what we have done, or at least not discover who is to blame. Politicians make payments to cover up affairs. Companies like Volkswagen come up with secret ways to cheat emission tests. But let's be honest, it's not just politicians and businesses that try to cover up what they have done. For years, my parents never served red wine in their home. They didn't drink a lot of alcohol, but they would serve white wine or other forms of alcohol. And I never really understood the reason. I assumed it was a matter of taste, but as often happens, at the time of my dad's funeral, stories get told, and I learned the true story, it seemed that years ago, my parents had been doing some spring cleaning a few weeks after a party and they turned cushions in the living room and found this huge red wine stain. Someone apparently had spilled it and quickly flipped the cushion lest they would be discovered. That's when my dad issued the edict, red wine will never be served in this house again. (laughs) But I was trying to imagine what would it look like that there was some 40 something year old man or woman that spilled it and then quickly flipped the cushion what would it have been like if someone had seen him doing it? But no one did, or at least no one who admitted it, and they got away with it. Sometimes, in fact, we can hide what we have done. Sometimes we can fool others. Sometimes we can even fool ourselves. But we can never hide from God. We can never fool God. That's what Genesis 3 reminds us. When we do try to hide from God, we can look as foolish as Adam and Eve do here in Genesis, or as foolish as this young boy hiding behind the tree on the bulletin cover. God knows us. And God knows our sins and our failures, whether we are willing to acknowledge them. That's the first bit of bad news that Genesis 3 has to tell us. There's also this second bit of bad news And that is, our sins do have consequences. When we fail to obey God, when we fail to acknowledge the gifts and limits that God has given us, relationships can be harmed, damaged, broken. Look again at what happens to Adam and Eve after they fail to follow the one commandment that God gave them. They're banished from the garden There's enmity between them and the rest of creation, whether it's the snake or in tilling the soil. And the relationship between Adam and Eve is damaged. Where before they were partners, now Eve will be subordinate. And let me just add this quick side comment. Please note that the subordination of women to men is shown in here in Genesis 3 as a consequence of sin, not God's original intention as expressed earlier in Genesis 1 and 2. No, the relationship between men and women, Genesis tells us, was intended to exhibit mutuality and equity, and marriage was to be a marriage of helpmates or partners. But back to the main point, as with Adam and Eve, our sins do have consequences. Relationships are damaged. Our relationships to those closest to us. Our relationship to others in society. Our relationship with creation. Sin also hurts us in our relationship with God on our end. Like Adam and Eve, because of sin, we want to keep our distance from God. We're embarrassed. We know what we have done or not done, and we know that God is not pleased with that. And so we want to look for a good hiding place and keep our distance. That's the bad news of Genesis 3. But here is the good news. Our sins cannot break our relationship with God, at least as far as God is concerned. We cannot hide from God. And when we realize that, when we step out from hiding, we find that God knows all and yet still loves us. Despite our sin, God still cares for us. Did you notice that when Adam and Eve left Eden, in that final verse I read, verse 21, it says that God made garments of skin for them. sounds a lot more durable and a lot more comfortable than the fig leaves. And from Genesis 3 onward, The Bible tells us of God's unrelenting pursuit of humanity, despite our sins, culminating in the gift of God's only Son. Stepping out from hiding is the first step on our journey to reconciliation and healing. Only when we admit that we have a problem can we get the help we need Only when we give up our illusions, our excuses, and our efforts to cover up can we discover the breadth and depth of God's grace and love. As one of my wisest teachers once put it, all reconciliation involves both judgment and forgiveness, both truth and grace. And this is why. If we assume that the other person doesn't know all, doesn't know the full truth, then our tendency is to think, ah, oh, but if they really knew me, if they really knew what I've done, they wouldn't love me. But the truth of God's grace is that God really does know us, and yet God still loves us, still cares for us. God comes to us as God approached Adam and Eve, and in that confrontation and judgment is truth and grace, and therefore healing. Only when we come out from hiding, only when we quit covering up for appearance's sake and admit the truth of what we have done and that we cannot fix it on our own, only then can we be truly healed. To be sure, there are consequences. And as with all healings, there is often pain we have to go through first. But it's the only way the only path to that healing. In the book, Carry On Warrior, Glennon Doyle Melton tells a story of her faith journey and discovery of the power of God's love and grace. Her story is in some ways a story of paradise lost. She grew up in a very loving family, a family that went to church every week. But as she grew older, she battled a number of demons that led to addiction and a destructive lifestyle. She writes, I felt like I had a giant hole in my life, and in college I tried to fill it with booze, drugs, and boys. But no matter how frantically I'd fill myself with whatever was available at night, the sunrise would come. I hated the sunrise. The sunrise was God stopping by every morning to shine light in my life, and that light was the last thing I wanted. She was a highly functional addict. She graduated from college. She got a teaching job. She even got awards for teaching. It's worth repeating, she writes, that sometimes (coughs) people who need help look nothing like people who need help. Teaching in school, she was good. But out of school, at night, it all fell apart. Darkness and light. I like to compare God's love to the sunrise, Melton writes. You can stay in the dark for years or decades, and when you finally step outside, it'll be there. That is the light. It was there the whole time, shining and shining. All those years, I thought of God and light and the sun as judgmental, but they weren't. The sunrise was my daily invitation from God to come back to life. One day, prompted by a positive pregnancy test, she said yes to God's invitation to step out of the darkness and into the light. She admitted to herself, to her family, to God, that her life was in shambles and she asked for help from God, from her sister. And her sister came over and together they threw out every bottle and pack of drugs in her apartment and then brought some sense of order to the chaos of her life. It was not easy, and there were many painful moments. But when she quit hiding, she writes, she found that God could fill the hole in her life in a way that all the other remedies that she had tried could not. Friends, sinning, And trying to cover it up with excuses or hide in the darkness is as old as Adam and Eve. But before us, indeed before Adam and Eve, there was God. A God of light who is always there and from whom we can never hide. Thanks be to God. Amen. Friends, let us step out into the light. Let us stand and proclaim our faith together with the words from the Iona community you'll find in the bulletin. We believe in God above us, maker and sustainer of all life. We believe in God beside us, Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh born of a woman, servant of the poor, tortured and nailed to a tree. A man of sorrows, he died forsaken. He descended into the earth, to the place of death. On the third day, he rose from the tomb. He ascended into heaven to be everywhere present, and his kingdom will come on earth. We believe in God within us. The Holy Spirit of Pentecostal fire, life-giving breath of the church, Spirit of healing and forgiveness. Source of resurrection and of eternal life. Amen. And let us sing together hymn number 298, There's a Wideness in God's Mercy.